Reality family, thanks so much for joining us for the teaching for this week. My name is John, and I'm really grateful to have you with us as we continue to explore the question of what is the church from the Bible. The passage for this week comes from 1 Peter, so I invite you to read that along with me. 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice in the inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And skipping down to verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. This is God's word. Well, last week we said that one of the biblical characteristics of the church is that we're a community that is to expect and even learn to rejoice in suffering. And in order to become this, we need to shift from having the expectation that our lives will be comfortable and secure to lives that will be full of, or we can learn to expect that suffering is gonna be a part of our lives. And I gave three reasons why this might be a really unpopular or uncommon message for us. The first is that we've exchanged a gospel of suffering for a gospel of comfort in our lives. And even though what God does, the way that Jesus saves us, is, is all uh, in and around us and providing for us. The second is that we don't have a vision for what suffering accomplishes in the Christian life. So I gave us four things that it accomplishes. The first is that it builds character in us. Suffer, through suffering, we become more like the Jesus that we worship. The second is that it helps us to check our, ourselves, to check are we all in with Jesus or are we only in for the good things that he provides. The third is that it brings closeness with us. If our God is a God who suffers and Jesus is the Christ who suffers, then when we suffer, he suffers along with us and we actually can become closer with this God. And then finally, it helps us to kill sin that in the path of becoming more like Jesus and killing the sin in our lives, it involves us suffering and denying ourselves and dying to sin. And then finally, the final reason why this is such a hard teaching for us is because we fail to identify with the suffering savior, savior of Jesus. We often think that he has suffered for us on our behalf so that almost like we don't have to suffer rather than an identifying with him where he becomes our example and we take his life on as our own so that we expect suffering in our own lives. 
So that's what I talked about last week. And this week I said I was going to give one more reason why I think suffering doesn't come to mind when we think about what it means to follow Jesus. And that's because I would say we don't know what time it is. We don't know what time it is. That means we haven't correctly identified the moment that we live in and what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus here today. So to explain this, I want to look at how I think we generally respond to suffering. How do you respond? How do you and I respond to suffering when it comes into our lives? Well, when I personally suffer, and for me, this last two years has been a difficult one. Um, I took on the job of pastoring and then uh, fairly shortly after I got diagnosed with cancer and have been through several, some treatments, several surgeries, and I'm still recovering from all of that. Um, and then also COVID has happened not only to me, but to all of us. And then recently just dealing with all the shenanigans with our building. And so there's lots of different things that have brought suffering in my life in the last couple of years. And I don't know what there is in your life that you might be suffering through right now. You know, maybe parenting is harder than you thought. I find that oftentimes, especially when people have two kids, which a lot of our church is going through right now, maybe the first kid was really easy and great, and the second one turns out to be uh, quite difficult. Uh, maybe you're not married or not in a relationship, and that's something that you always thought would be a part of your life. Or you're married, but you don't have kids, and you, you thought that would be the next step in your journey. Or you're a grandparent and you don't have grandkids and you're really hoping for that. Maybe you've lost your job recently or, or been passed over for a promotion. Or you can't afford a home. You're dealing with that frustration of what it means, of the affordability crisis in Vancouver. And, and so whatever that is, I don't, I don't know. But if you're anything like me, when those things come into my life, I, I start to ask some questions. Like, why is this happening to me? Or what did I do to deserve this? These are the types of questions that creep up in the back of my head, and sometimes I ask them to God. And there are emotions attached to each of these questions and my suffering. There's the feeling of failure, that I didn't make it. Sometimes it's the feeling of being lied to. Why, why did I think, why did someone tell me that this would be my story? If I just did A, B, and C, then I would end up with D in my life. I can also feel like uh, I'm deficient as a person, that there's something wrong with me that's causing this suffering in my life, or that life is just extremely unfair to me. And I don't know if you can identify with any of those questions or those emotions that come up when suffering happens in our lives, whether it's you know something we would say that's real suffering or deep suffering, or whether it's just kind of first world suffering. Um, and that can happen on an individual level, but it also happens on a communal level. You know, like I said, this has been a really weird fall for our church. Uh, we shrunk during the pandemic, as many churches did, and then we had this crazy flood in our basement, and uh, because of some contractors that didn't do their job, we are now kicked out of there because of an asbestos leak in the building, and it's going to keep us out for probably the next month. And so here are the questions I think that sometimes we ask when we're part of a group of people that are experiencing this kind of suffering. You know, what's wrong with us? Why isn't God blessing us? Or maybe there's something, you might ask this question, maybe there's something wrong with our leadership. Maybe there's something wrong with me. And you wouldn't be alone. I've asked that question. Us as leaders, we've asked that question. Maybe there's some sort of sin in the camp that's causing all of these, uh, this chain effect of things to be happening to us. And again, the emotions that we can feel are, are uh, very important in the way that we experience suffering. You know, I can feel like a failure. Uh, or I think some of us, many as people have left in the pandemic, sometimes going to other churches, sometimes just moving away. We can have that feeling of being left behind. I have a friend who uh, helped to start a church about seven or eight years ago in Vancouver. And at that time, about 30 or 40 people from reality went there. 
And he said he overheard one of them in a conversation saying that they were at reality. It was like a, they were at a party and then they heard about a cooler party that was starting up. And so they came over to this new cool party. And, and we were kind of bemoaning about how immature that is, but it also makes us feel like at reality at that time, like we're just at the not cool party. We're like the, the ones who have been left, left behind. I don't know if you've ever experienced the joys of being broken up with, but it's kind of like that experience. And maybe that's how many of us feel now. Like people have moved on um, and then there's this feeling like we have been left behind, like almost like we got dumped. Now, what are the, so those are the, the questions that I have and the emotions that I experience when um, things don't go well personally or things don't go well um, communally. And, and I, I think what I want to explore is what are the stories that are behind these questions and these thoughts and these emotions? Well, for me, it's that I shouldn't be suffering, that I deserve happiness and for things to be going moderately well in my life. And for me, the formula looks something like this. If I do the right thing, if I'm a pretty good person, life should work out well for me. And if you are uh, the child of, of immigrants, which I am, um, maybe you, you notice this story. There's something like that in, in our um, background where if you work hard, you seize the opportunities that your family has laid out for you, then you're going to be successful in life. You're going to be able to be financially secure specifically. Now, when we compare that as Christians to the story of the Bible, does it match up? Is that the story of the Bible that if we sacrifice a little bit for God and we work hard and we're good people, that things will work out for us? No, that's not the story of the Bible. That's just more the story of our culture in the West. It's a story of rugged individualism and self-determination. But for most of us, that's the story that mobilizes us too, even though we believe in God. There's an author named Pete Scazzaro. You may have heard of him from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he says, Jesus may be in our heart, but grandpa is in our bones. Jesus may be in our heart, but grandpa's in our bones. And by that, he means we may believe in Jesus, we may ascribe to all of you know, the theological nuances of what it means to believe in Jesus, but the stories that mobilize us, the things that are in our bones, are actually the stories that we grew up with from our families of origin, or the stories that are imported into us from our culture. And so the idea that if you do the right thing and things will work out for you is not a biblical story. It's just a story from our culture. And that applies not only to how we look at ourselves as individuals, but also as communities. I think we believe that if we're part of a church and we're doing the right thing and, and things are just moderately okay, then we should be growing. Uh, I, I joke about the five Bs that we measure in churches to know if we're healthy and growing. It's uh, babies, baptisms, budgets, butts and seats, and buildings. And we're just knocking it out of the park on the first one. Babies, just boom. Um, maybe doing the best of anybody that I know. And the rest of them, not so well. And uh, so, but the, the feeling there is if we measure by those things, then something must be going wrong. Now again, is that the story of the Bible? That, that your church will always be growing in all of those ways? No, it isn't. It's the assumption of capitalism, that there's always a growing pot and you can keep getting more and more without hurting anyone else. And it's the story of Silicon Valley, of startups that there's this opportunity for exponential growth and that that's a good thing. But if we look at the story of Jesus, and this is not to downplay what business does, that's fine for business, but it's just not the story of the church. If we look at Jesus' life, this isn't what he says. He's often, he'll gather a large crowd of, of people around him and then he'll discourage them from, from following him by saying really difficult things like, you will suffer if you follow me. And then a lot of people walk away. And Paul does the same thing. He never sets the expectations for their church. He's like, man, if you guys just get a better worship team, 
and someone to run your social media campaign, like you're just gonna take over the city of Ephesus. That's not how Paul speaks. That's not the expectations that he sets up for the church. But it is for us, because even if we believe in Jesus, at the level of assumption, at the level of story, in our bones, we have different stories that mobilize us. These are not fully God's stories. They're just stories of our culture. So what do we do as followers of Jesus? How can we become people who we see need to embrace this different story, a story of suffering, even learning to rejoice in suffering? And how do we get Jesus not only into our minds and into our hearts, but into our narratives and our stories and into our bones? Well, I think this passage teaches us three things, three things that we need to do if we want to be a community of people that learn to rejoice in suffering and can make that shift from an assumption of comfort to an assumption of suffering. The first is this, that we need to identify the time that we live in biblically. We need to identify the time. The story of the Bible, um, God's story starts off really, really well. It starts off in this beautiful garden as we looked at this summer in Genesis 1. It's a place where God is creating and he is inviting people to partner with him in, in creating this world of shalom and cosmic flourishing. But just a few chapters later in the Bible, sin enters into the world and the people are expelled from this garden and from this space. And the Bible talks about this in many ways, what happens, but we're in bondage to sin, it would say. There's a new God over us. There's a new power over us, this dark force. And it becomes a time of, of suffering among many other things in our world. But the good news is that God doesn't give up. And at the climax of the story, God actually comes himself and he enters into this world as Jesus. And he lives a life amidst people, a life of suffering. And at the very end of his life, Jesus suffers the weight of this full sin, all this bondage on him. And it says through his death that he frees us and invites us back into this relationship that God, we were made for. He absorbs this sin into his life and he ransoms us from the dark forces, as Mark puts it. And by doing that, he opens a portal that's back to this garden story, but it's also a hope. It's a future hope for us. The Bible calls it the hope of glory, that at some point we will be able to be in Jesus' kingdom working with him face to face without the marring effects of sin in our lives. Now the question is, if this is the story of the Bible, kind of these three movements, where are we now? Where do we live? What time is it? Well, do we live in the garden? No, I don't think that the Bible says that. Now, is, do we live in just a time of meaningless suffering, being enslaved to sin? Not quite, not quite. And is it a time of unfettered glory where we see Jesus face to face and we work with him unencumbered? No, it's not that time either. What we live in is, is an in-between moment. Paul calls it, as I said last week in Romans, this present suffering. We live where, in a place where Jesus has come, where he's freed us from the effects of sin, but we are still here in this world. Paul calls this a time of groaning. It's an in-between time where we have this hope of glory, but yet we're still in this world that is uh, trapped by sin. And so we're groaning as we kind of turn this long, long corner. Theolog theologians call this the now but not yet kingdom, that the kingdom of God is both here now, but it's not yet at the same time. And that's the moment that we live in biblically. So how do we live in this in-between space? I wanna to speak to two things. First, how do we do this communally? What can we do communally to remind ourselves that we live? This is our story, it's where we live. And then what do we do as individuals to live faithfully in this moment? So as a church family, we have to commit to being a time-keeping community. 
we have to commit to being a time-keeping community. That we remind ourselves when we come together that we live in a different story. We live in this present world differently than the rest of the world. See, our world also sees that we live in a moment of suffering, a, a moment that is not all that it could be in the potentiality of humans and the world itself. But the, generally speaking, it's moving, it's pushing us in one of two directions. One direction in our culture is to push to forward. It's, it's this kind of narrative that we can alleviate suffering by leaving the past behind and moving towards a bright future. This is uh, maybe no clearer than in John Lennon's song, Imagine, which my kids, or not my kids sang, but they sang it actually at a Christmas, pa Christmas pageant at, uh, at my kids' school, which was quite revealing to me. I, so I think it's the song of our culture, but it's this idea that if there's no, we can imagine a future where there's no war, there's no religion, there's no countries, there's no possessions. And there's this kind of idea, if we could leave back these, these stupid things that enslave us from the past, then we could experience this, imagine this beautiful future where the world could live as one, as John Lennon sings. This is also a story that's told to us by Silicon Valley. I was uh, invited to invest in a venture fund this week, and one of their core beliefs is they said that we believe that technology can solve all human problems. We believe that good technology can solve all human problems. And it's kind of the same idea that all the problems that we have, the environmental problems, our problems in not getting along with one another can be resolved by better technology. And of course, uh, speed there becomes king. The faster that we can do that, the faster that we can move these things to market, the faster that we'll be able to solve our human problems. And so it's this vision of a future that, that, that we have, that we can, we can get there, a vision of um, all of us being at one, and uh, a vision of peace and, and joy and love that comes from us leaving the past behind and solving uh, our problems in various ways. Now, if you're liberal and if you're younger, liberal politically, and if you're younger, this is probably the story that moves you. This is what's deep in your bones. That the past is this embarrassing time where people had old-fashioned views about the world. So let's, let's imagine a new future and let's move towards that future. Now, the other direction that people are moving is exactly the opposite. Again, they identify that there's problems in the world, but the, the, the emphasis or the direction of the movement is backwards that it used to be good back in the day. And so what we're trying to do is preserve that past, to conserve it. That's where the word conservative comes from. It's a looking backwards towards the past and saying, let's keep some of that or bring it back into the present. That's the way for us to move to a better future. And of course, there's a Christian sub-story here for us in the West that many people think that the, the time in the past was a time where we were a Christian nation and the church was great. And so what we need to do is get back to that time. Now. As a timekeeping community, we can't fit into either of these perspectives on time. They don't fit, they don't slot in perfectly with what the Bible says. Instead, we must be committed, whether we're you know, younger or older, whether we're more liberal politically or conservative politically, and we're all going to have different views. But as a church family, we need to be committed to a different story and a different view on time. It's a, it's a view that says Jesus has started this moment in history and he will return to bring it back again. And we must discipline ourselves to live in this moment as a tension and as a time where we embrace the suffering of the world with the hope of glory. And it becomes an expectation for us, as Peter says. He says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishing is refined by fire, 
may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying our present sufferings and our trials that we go through are supposed to be looked at in the light of this future glory. We experience suffering now, but we have this hope of glory that Jesus has started this new age. He continues on, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the faith and the hope that we have in this Jesus, that we are receiving, that, that there is a hope that we are saved now, that we're part of his kingdom, but that there is this fuller expression that we'll experience when we receive the goal of our faith, when we see Jesus face to face. As Jesus says it this way, in this world, you will have trouble. It is a moment, it is a time of suffering, it is a time of groaning and tension and living in this in-between. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. That there's hope for us now and there's also a different future for us ahead. And this is part of the reason why we gather together as a church community, is to rehearse and remind ourselves of this counter-narrative. It's what you're doing as you listen to this now, that we remind ourselves that we are not moving to any of the other narratives in the world, as drawn as we might feel to them. This is what uh, uh, scholar Andy Root says. The church has always been a timekeeping community. That's what made this band of weirdos so disconcerting to the powerful. The church enacted a narrative of Jesus' final days every week, correlating their own being to Jesus' own time. They gathered for worship and the meal on the first day of the week, the day of his resurrection, which was the giving of new time. The church knew that this new time was radically aimed, aimed at something, that in time Jesus would return. And the little church claimed that a time of one kingdom was coming to an end in order to bring forth the next. This timekeeping, the claim of distant sacred time through the resurrected body of Jesus made Roman power brokers worry. I just want to pause here and say it's happening. He says this tiny little church, or a church that's at the margins, speaks to power by uh, living on a different speed and at a different time with a different understanding of what this moment is, which includes suffering. He continues, these household gatherings claimed that they were living in the time of the Spirit, unthreatened even by death. The time that they shared in and anticipated was so full that even death, time's great dark promise, had no claim on them. For even while they were in time, they nevertheless partook in eternity. He's saying the same thing that I'm trying to say here, that the church is a timekeeping community, and that's what allows us to suffer. When we realize that what we're doing is by, by taking part in Jesus, that we're taking part in eternity, we can see that this moment, and even he says death itself, our sufferings and death itself are not the end of the story but actually a way for us to become more like Jesus, to become closer to him and to witness to the world. And this is why we gather to hear God's story. It's to be reminded that we live in a different view of time, that we live in a time where suffering is to be expected. And like Jesus, we don't move to seek comfort, but we embrace suffering on behalf of the world. And we also remind ourselves of a future hope that Jesus has purchased for us. And we practice this together as a community by breaking bread and rehearsing communion together. It's not just a reminder for us that Jesus has died for our sins, although it's true that he has, but it's also, as Paul says, something that we do every week, every time that we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That Jesus' broken body and his blood, his suffering has opened up a future for us. And that future is often described in the Bible as a banquet. 
where we sit down face to face and eat with Jesus and with one another. And every time that we do this together, we remind ourselves of this story. It's like a little appetizer in the hope for this banquet when Jesus comes again. So that's what it means to be a community of people who follows Jesus and commits themselves to living in this moment as a moment of groaning, that we come together and we mind, remind ourselves that we are in the now but not yet kingdom, and that we combat the other narratives that are coming into our lives by focusing and, and refocusing ourselves in and around the story of Jesus. But what about as individuals? What can we do? Well, I think Peter wants us to adopt an identity, a cross-eyed identity, a cross-eyed identity. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, a a person who is cross-eyed has one eye that's looking straight ahead and then one eye that is looking off to the side. And I think this is what Peter wants us to do uh, with our identity in Jesus. He says it this way, To those chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad, you are to conduct yourself in reverence during your time living as strangers strangers and exiles, that's to be our identity. And I think it's a cross-eyed identity because even though we are people who are here on earth, that we are here wherever we find ourselves, for us here in Vancouver, we are also to have our hearts and our minds uh, focused on another story at the same time, to be cross-eyed, that our, our lives are lived here, that we, that we have our homes and our families uh, and um, living in the city of Vancouver and committed to that, but at the same time, with our identity securely focused in Jesus and for a hope of when he arrives, that we live in the now but not yet kingdom. And this place never becomes our true homeland. Now this is a really difficult discipline for us for two reasons. First, it's because our society is super invested in this world becoming a comfortable home for us. This is basically the Canadian dream, the middle-class Canadian dream, that you move here, you find a space, and you make it comfortable, a comfortable life for you and your family. And because that's the strong narrative uh, for us in this world, I think it functions a lot. um, To be a Christian in this world is like being cross-eyed. Like for most of us, that we're not cross-eyed. And if if you can make yourself cross-eyed like me, you can only do it for a certain period of time before your eyes automatically focus back to being looking straight ahead. And so for us as followers of Jesus, it's really hard because to be cross-eyed is, is something that we have to do again and again and again because the winds and the stories of our, our culture are always shaping us to focus on now, on your life, on your emotions, what's good for you, what's comfortable for you, what will make your life great. The second reason is because the longer that any, we're in a place, anyone is anywhere, the more likely we are to make our home there. Now, this is true of any immigrant group. My uh, uh, heritage comes from immigrants that are Germans into Canada and then also Chinese immigrants. And the first wave of those immigrants who come across are going to be more like people from their home countries. So from like Chinese people from China or Hong Kong or immigrants from Germany. But every successive generation, for example, me, I'm a, a second generation Canadian on my Chinese side and third on the German side. Any time uh, the, the next generations come, we're actually going to be more and more like Canadians because this is our home culture than we were from the immigrant cultures that we came from. And the same thing happens in the church. The longer that we are here, the longer that we're rooted in a culture, entrenched here, the more likely we are to take on the stories of our culture, the mobilizing culture here. And so how do we keep our eyes crossed? How do we discipline ourselves as individuals? Well, I want to give you just three questions that can be litmus tests to help you know if your eyes are focused here or our eyes are actually crossed. The first is, how do you respond to suffering in your life? 
do you respond as, as I said I did, which is crying out, why me? Now, I want to be careful here because God always invites us to cry out to him with whatever's going on in our hearts. We see the psalmist doing this. We even see Jesus doing this, that we're invited to cry out with whatever's going on in our lives, whether it's like really deep, painful suffering or whether it's like totally first world suffering, we're invited to call out to Jesus. But behind that, after we call out to Jesus and find comfort in him, we're also invited to see why we're, why we're asking that or why we're feeling that way. Why me? And it might show that you're actually just living in the wrong time. You have a wrong perspective on time. And so how do you respond to suffering in your life? This is very similar to what I said last week. It's a check on us to see whether we're all in on the story of Jesus and the suffering Savior, whether we're living cross-eyed or whether our eyes are just focused on this moment that we have in front of us. The second is what comforts in your life are actually stopping you from living as an exile and a stranger? What comforts are causing you to focus and narrow your gaze to just this moment in time and to not put your hopes ahead, but to actually keep your hopes right here in the present? Um, I'll give you an example from my own life. I'm married with kids. Uh, this sounds a little bit like a confession. It's not. I'm, I'm very grateful for my family and uh, for my wife and my kids. They're so awesome and I love them so much. And they've taught me so much about what it means to follow Jesus uh, and what it means to be a spiritual father and to, to be a child of God. All these many different things that I've learned, not only personally, but spiritually from being a dad. And they're such a blessing in my life. But the, the story of the Bible says that those good things that God places in our lives can ultimately lead us away from him. The blessings from God can also be things that push us uh, that, that become idols for us. They become gods in and of themselves. And that's the definition of an idol. When we make a good thing an ultimate thing, it takes a place in our lives that it's not supposed to be and can pull our hearts away from God. And so if, if our design, like we've talked about in this series, is for our arrows, for our lives to be pointed towards Jesus, what idols can do is good th they can be good things in our lives that instead of pointing our arrows towards Jesus, they can tilt the, the design and the desire and the hopes of our lives not to this future kingdom that we have with God and this time that we'll meet him face to face, but actually to a very present moment where we're trying to make heaven come on earth in our own lives. And this is what good things can do to us. And so the comforts of our lives, are, that, that's for me one of the things I have to think about. Is my family, am I now taking my hopes for my family to be the ultimate hopes? The hopes for my kids, for example, is one that I think about a lot and one that causes me not to be cross-eyed but to to focus my eyes here? Am I making a life for them where they can attain and achieve everything that I hope for them and they hope for themselves? Is that my ultimate hope that they would become these amazing people that accomplish maybe what I have never been able to accomplish? Or is that a good goal and that would be a nice thing to have and my hope is ultimately a distant one? that they would be people who know and love Jesus and they observe the suffering in our lives and in our family, the things that we may, maybe don't have that other kids and their friends have as an opportunity to be a different kind of people living as strangers and exiles in the world. So this is an example from my own life, but are the comforts from your life stopping you from living as exiles and strangers? And the third question is maybe a funny one, but something I've been mulling over in my own life for a couple of years. And it's the question, does your, what is your attitude towards those in the church family who are suffering for Jesus? Maybe who aren't meeting that cultural baseline of happiness. They're living in a different life. Let me give you an example, again, from my own life. Uh, a couple years ago, I had a, a conversation with a friend. It was actually, I'm taping at Westside. It was just a few blocks from here. 
It was at a Starbucks and I'll never forget the conversation that we had. He uh, is a gay man and he was fully on in um, the scene, you know, partying every night, sleeping with different people all the time, addicted to a bunch of different drugs. Uh, he also was HIV positive and, um, you know, his, his life was falling apart. And he was open in that moment to Jesus. And through our friendship, I was trying to, you know, he, he was very curious and we, we would meet together and talk about Jesus all the time. Um, and he was at, in this conversation, he was just at one of those moments where he was like really weighing whether he could throw in with Jesus or not. And he said to me, um, you know, I'm willing to open myself up to this thought, to, that Jesus, um, to, to go all in with Jesus. But he said, I realize I'm considering it in a way that you never had. And at that point in my life, I'm thinking, like, I'm a professional Christian. Like, I, I have thought about this long and hard. I'm the one sharing the gospel with you. And he said, yeah, but you have a wife and kids. You have these great people in your life. And one of his great desires was to have a family. And he said, if you, you are asking me to leave everything that I know and love in my life, yeah, sure, it's wreaking havoc in my life right now, but it's also my community. It's a place where I find identity and relationship. And you're saying to me that if I go with Jesus, that I have to give all that, I have to be open-handed with all of that and possibly even say no to having a family in my life in the future. And so he said, I'm thinking about this in a way that you never have. So he said, I'm willing to think about it, but I want, I'll go away and, and, and just think about whether I'm going to give all of that up for Jesus, but I want you to go away and do the same thing. Would you be willing to let go of everything for Jesus? So I, we finished the conversation, I started walking home, and I remember thinking, like, at first I was like, this is such a weird conversation, of course I would give everything for, up for Jesus. But I just started to think through it in my own life. My family, these people who I love and uh, cherish so deeply, and I just realized I had never thought he was right. I'd never thought through it in the same way that he had. You know, in my life, it had always been an assumption that I would get married, and I know I'm not the greatest catch in the world, but I was like, I could trick somebody into saying yes, and, uh, and I did. So ta-da. Uh, but it was always a baseline assumption that if I, you know, was just a good person, I followed Jesus, that I would find someone to, to, who would say yes to that in my life. And I realized he was asking a question that I had never asked before because I had never questioned that assumption, never questioned that comfort in my life. And so here's, here's the thing that I realized. What do we do with folks like my friend in the church? He understood, but I didn't. Because our gut reaction towards people like them was like, hey, let's find a partner for you. Let's find, a, let's find a spouse for you. And because churchianity success and worldly success are the same, that romantic love is one of the most important things in our world and the key to a happy middle-class life, Christian or not. So when we meet people who are, for example, single, like my friend was staring down uh, the barrel of if he was going to say yes to Jesus, and they say to us, like, I don't want to be single. Actually, I really wish I would be married, but I'm, I'm saying no to it uh, for this at this time um, to say yes to Jesus. Often the thing that comes out in us is the, the initial reaction is to feel sad for them. And they often feel like a failure in our midst because we're looking at it just in this moment. Our eyes and our attention are focused here for people who are suffering for the kingdom. But if we're a cross-eyed Christian, we'll be actually be able to say something different. While they say that in choosing to suffer for Jesus, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense in the economy of our world and even in, sometimes in the economy of the church. But in the story of Jesus, if we take this cross-eyed identity on, then we'll actually be able to honor those people and see them as examples for us and what I would say modern-day saints, people who show us what it means to suffer for the kingdom 
of God. So how do you respond to those who are like my friend, who are people who aren't winning in our economy, either of the church or in Western society, whether it's people like him who choose singleness, whether it's those who are poor, those who are humble, just doing humble jobs and, and maybe menial things, those who are persecuted for their faith. These are people that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount are blessed. What is your perspective on them? Is your gut reaction something that just looks down on them, that feels sorry for them and feels bad for them? If so, that probably means, like me in that conversation, that your eyes are just focused on the here and now, that you're focused on being comfortable and we've swallowed too much of the Canadian story and we're not actually living in a cross-eyed identity. And so what would it be like for us to share in their suffering, as Paul says? You know, this is one of the reasons why I love interviewing missionaries that uh, our church has the privilege of supporting. And I, I continue to say that to them, that we, we have the honor of supporting you, is because they show us a little bit of that in our world today, that they are suffering, maybe just in small ways, but they're suffering for the kingdom of God. They're doing something less and smaller and often more humble for the kingdom of God. What's your attitude towards those missionaries that we support? Are you cross-eyed or are you so stuck in this cultural moment that your story can't help but to look down on those who might be more like the Apostle Paul and Jesus than we like to think in our world. I'm going to close with this word from 2 Peter. He says, Dear friends, I urge you to live as strangers and exiles. That's the same call that I want you to hear, to, to adopt this mindset of being cross-eyed, to join us as a community that learns to keep time that says we live in this moment of tension. He continues to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. It's to understand that these other stories, although they may not seem like they are, you know, um, ultimately evil or sinful, that they wage war against us adopting the identity that Jesus had and that he offers to us to live as cross-eyed people in this world with the hope of Jesus coming and the hope of glory while rooted here in this moment, living and, and open to suffering because, not because we love suffering, but because we love Jesus and we want to show him to the world. And that's what the next passage says, that when we conduct ourselves honorably among people around us, even when they slander us as evildoers, they'll observe our good works and glorify God on the day he visits. That as we move in this next week into a section on mission, that this is so key for us, that if we're open to having this cross-eyed identity, that if we're open to knowing what time that we live in, it's a time of tension and a time of groaning, and we're committed to being people who are willing to suffer in that, that the face and the glory of God will actually shine out from our community and from our lives, that people will see something different and will have something to say to them as they ask about the God that we love. Please close with me in prayer. God, we thank you for this passage and for this time. And uh, it is such a foreign idea for us. Um, who live pretty comfortable lives. And so I pray that for us, the blessings that you bring into our lives wouldn't become traps that pull us away from you, but instead they can just be good things that we hold with an open hand, that there are responsibilities that we have, but that our hearts would be set to your story and to your gospel, that Jesus would be more than just someone we worship, but he would also be our example and that we would take up uh, his path of downward mobility and openness to suffering on behalf of the world and we pray that as we take this path more and more as a community, that your, um, your face would shine out from our community and that people who are looking for a different way 
the people who want, are longing to see your face would see it in our community and that you would draw many people to you. So teach us together this week what it means to be this kind of people and this kind of community, we pray, as we go about our daily lives. Keep us cross-eyed and focused on you and your kingdom. With Jesus at the center, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.